Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 196, The Technique. We're joined this week by celebrated technologist Kevin Kelly to explore the interdependent and evolving web of technologies that he calls the Technium. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm very excited today to be joined over Skype with Kevin Kelly. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks. Uh, It's my pleasure and honor to be here. Yeah, and we were just talking before the interview, and it sounds like you, through some interesting fortune, were part of a group that actually spawned kind of the beginnings of the American Buddhist movement. You're not a Buddhist yourself, but you were kind of in the scene, the New Age Journal, Whole Earth Catalog, and there are people like Rick Fields who are writing for these different publications along with you. And I found that really fascinating that you've been part of this separate movement that we're associated with. So that's really fascinating. Yeah. The kind of slow rise of Buddhism in America um, had you know, very deep roots, but there was a phase in the 70s and 80s when there was a lot of writing, movement, building of organizations, kind of conceptual work that was being done in publications like New Age Journal, Tricycle, um, the Whole Earth Catalog. And since I was editing or writing for those, you know, I was bumping shoulders with those folks. And for all I know, I might have been influenced by them. <laughs> cool. Well, maybe we'll find out here in this interview. <laughs> and so just a little bit of background information, too, for the Buddhist geeks. You're the senior maverick at Wired Magazine. You helped co-found Wired in 1993. Um, you also have an incredibly popular website, kk.org. And on there's the Cool Tools website, which looks like it's half a million unique visitors per month. So half a million geeks coming to that site every month to check out the tools. And you're also an author. You've written several books, and the newest one is one that we wanted to speak with you about today, and it's entitled What Technology Wants. That's correct. And I had another book called Out of Control that was released, or at least written 20 years ago, and in some ways has become more popular now than when it first came out, which is a book describing the powers of bottom-up decentralized organizations and the way in which you know, slightly out of control systems are actually to our benefit. It's a very geeky book and still relevant, I think. Wow, cool. So it sounds like it may be a, a little bit ahead of its time when it came out since it's becoming more popular as it gets yeah, older. Exactly. It was sort of ignored when it first came out because it seemed to kind of, you know, another Californian wild-eyed utopian vision of the future that um, basically has come true. <laughs> And, you know, as a leading technologist, you, now you're someone that's incredibly well-respected for your perspectives and ideas on technology, in part because it seems like you've gotten it right a lot of the time. It's interesting, though, because you acknowledge that in your younger adult days, you were, had a really love-hate relationship. Actually, you had more of a hate relationship, it sounds like. Not necessarily hatred, but just not very interested in technology. You write that you spent 
almost eight years traveling remote parts of Asia, living really simply, almost like a monastic type of lifestyle. And that later on you came to incorporate technology back into your life, but you still, sounds like you keep it a little bit at a distance. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that paradox between of not wanting to be overrun by technology and then also um, wanting to be connected kind of to this deeper something that was part of your travels, I guess. I kind of fell into a little bit of the ethos of the hippies in the late 60s and early 70s, which was really kind of sense of dropping out of this this sort of system of uh, not just technology, but of the entire corporate industrial complex. And I grew up in suburbia, which I didn't really like. And there was the whole, well, let's drop out and remake our own civilization in the woods, which was the hippie thing. And we'll dig our own wells and build our own houses by hand and return to kind of a simpler time, which I actually participated in. I actually did build a house by chopping down the trees and making lumber out of it and hauling the stones from the creek. And it was a very large house, not just a little cabin. And before that, I was traveling with very little and riding my bicycle across the country and things like that, in which I found a a peace, I guess I would call it, with having very little. And I think I identified with people like the Amish and my fellow hippie back to landers and that was sort of one side and it was very comforting and very uh, strong and that was my identity I think and maybe I'd still be there but I got involved with the whole of catalog which open view to technology it was called access to tools that was the subtitle of this bible of the back to landers and it said hey if you're going to dig a well, you should at least use the right hand tool. You should be aware that there are Aladdin lamps, which are superior to your normal kerosene lamp. These are high-tech kerosene lamps. They, through some ingenious device, they actually make a flame that's 10 times as bright using just kerosene and no moving parts. And if you're going to burn kerosene, you might as well use one of these. And so there was this selection process saying, hey, okay, keep it to a minimum, but find the best tool for the job. And we were calling it appropriate technology. There was actually Buddhist philosophers like E.M. Shoemaker and others who were talking about small is beautiful, simple is beautiful. And that was part of the philosophy. But I think what it did is it kind of opened up for me the door into the idea that some technology was better than other technology and that some was very appropriate and that you could select the right technology and the right technology could be very sophisticated. So the Horth catalog was actually probably the first lay publication to actually review or talk about personal computers because in addition to the the beekeeping equipment and the macrame supplies and the instructions on homeschooling, the most expensive thing reviewed in the Horth catalog was a five thousand dollar Calculator basically is HP scientific calculator, which was the closest that anybody could come to a personal computer in their early 70s. And so the Horth catalog went on, and I was involved with that when we started to review 
the early personal computers and the um, software for them. No one else was doing that. So Stuart Brand, I would have to say, led the, the charge in deciding that computers, at least the personal version of them, could actually be appropriate tools. Until that moment, computers were sort of written off as the man, the big brother, the thing that you were going to avoid. But Stuart understood intuitively that the personal version of that were actually tools that augmented individuals that were liberating. And we ran things like Ted Nelson's manifesto about the liberation of computers. And so there was a bunch of people who were kind of seeing these things in a different way. And I think what happened was that the, the computer chip and then, of course, the computer network really revealed to us a different face on technology that we had never really seen before. Until that time, big or powerful technology had a kind of industrial, inhuman scale, a kind of frightening power. But something about the chip and then particularly the chip connected to the phone system felt much more organic. It felt much more lifelike. It felt much more at the scale of humanity. And it became easier to embrace. And the more we embraced it, the more we saw of ourselves. And I think that changed my mind about technology, just understanding that it didn't have to be concrete and bulldozers and chemicals, that there was actually another side. And once I saw the other side, I began to see those other things like concrete and bulldozers in a different light. At that point, had wired already sprung forth? In kind of the chronological order, I was involved with the personal computers in the online world from 81. I think I was online. And then we got involved in starting the well, which was the first public access to the Internet's in 85 or so and I started writing about the culture around technology in 87, 89, 88 around there and I did something called Signal which was a kind of a precursor to Wired. It was this catalog and a special issue that was kind of bringing together all the different subcultures that were around or forming around these new technologies, the Xerox, Zines, Fax networks, bulletin boards, CB radio, all this kind of stuff. And that showed that there was uh, some appetite for this. And I met Lewis and Jane, who had uh, similar ideas about doing a real magazine. The magazine I was publishing was kind of a newsprint 2.0 version because we actually were running a a publication that was user-written and user-supported, so there was no ads. It was all written by the users and then read and paid for by the users. The stuff that we ran reads exactly like a blog posting now. At that time, it had an incredibly powerful effect upon people because you didn't see it anywhere else in print. It was passionate amateurs and enthusiasts writing about what they loved and knew about on very interesting things that you'd never had heard of and with minimal editing and a lot of selection on our part though. So it's like reading the best of the web 20 years before there was the web. For those who kind of got it and understood it, it was a lifeline. And so 
Lewis and Jane, the co-founders of Wired, came along and they said, hey, we can take the same stuff, but we can add color and gloss and advertising and production values, and it'll be a hit. And I thought, mm, I don't know, but I'll give it a try. And they were right. You put people in the cover instead of just ideas. You wrap people around the ideas. I was talking to the same people, doing the same kind of stuff, but now we had an audience and, you know, in the millions, and that was weird in many ways, but to show that the geek part of the culture had just gone mainstream. And I think it wasn't the geeks move. I think this the mainstream move to the geeks. Interesting. And now almost two decades later, you've continued kind of down this interesting alley of exploring technology. And your, your most recent book, What Technology Wants, there's some really, really powerful ideas in there. And, and one of the central ones is of what you call the technium. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit for us about what the technium is, and then also how it's different than how we normally think of technology. Yeah, so the way I like to kind of explain the technium is to suggest that it's as broad as what we would say culture is, because it includes most of the things we've made with our minds, including, of course, all the hardware and infrastructure roads and electricity and cars and chemicals and vacuum cleaners and bookshelves and all that. That's all part of this larger thing. But what I'm calling the technium is different from that in two ways. One, it is more than just the set of all those things. What I'm suggesting is that all those parts that we have made are so interdependent they require each other to be invented and to exist and so the iphone or the iphone that you have in your pocket would require thousands of others intermediate technologies to to invent it and to keep it running and it is like a web of different technologies plural and that web or super organism or superstructure has its own agenda, which is, again, how it's different, or not only agenda, it has its own dynamics, its own biases. And I give the name of the technium to that thing to indicate that it's not just a bunch of technologies that are in a set collected, but they actually interact as if it was a living ecosystem. And so think of the technium as the ecosystem of all these technologies that are supporting and maintaining each other. Unlike culture, this technium has its own inherent biases and tendencies. And the book, What Technology Wants, is exploring what those tendencies are. And one thing I was really struck with just early in the book was the observation that the technium began really at the big bang it sounds like it the technium sort of was started could you talk about that and how that makes sense since you know when we look around we see human technology and humans only coming online you know very recently yes and so what i try to do is to place let's call it the technium this super organism or this ecology of technology in the context of life and life itself in the context of the Big Bang. If we look at the history of the universe, uh, 
there is this remarkable thread of self-organization that's moving through it. And from however it started, did the Big Bang, most of the universe is running down in entropy, and that seems to be the universal law of the universe. Without exception, things run down, except that there are these pockets of persistent ordering. The system is sort of creating entropy at a very high rate, and that accelerated generation of entropy actually is compensated for by increasing order. And we have things like galaxies which maintain their order and create additional order over billions of years and stars which are these self-sustaining, self-generating machines that actually produce increasing order in that they make heavier atoms from lighter atoms and are building up molecules and out of those built up molecules we get planets and they can actually self-organize into atmospheres and and at least on one of those planets and probably billions of those planets in the universe we have the emergence of life which is again it self-creates self-organizes into these uh, self-sustaining patterns that we call life and evolution and they over 3.7 billion years on earth that self-organization has self-organized or self-created increasing order I call it exotropy and uh, in the face of accelerated creation of entropy around it until that little threads of increasing order are been running on on this planet for 3.7 billion years and now the technium the order the life made sort of minds and out of our minds we are participating in that self-organization by creating increasing complexity and order in the technium. In that way, the technium, or stuff that we've made, you know, all these gadgets and all the other things we're filling in the world are, are basically extensions of the cosmic evolution force, the self-organization that's running through the universe and life. And now through the technium, it's sort of the, the latest version of that process. And I think that's important to keep in mind because a lot of us, are, especially the geek side, are involved in making new things, technology, or just new gadgets that aren't around very long, or there are websites that are up and gone, and there's a kind of an ephemeral feeling to a lot of what we make. And particularly on the other end where we're consuming it or trying to sell it. And I think sometimes that can feel very belittling or maybe like we're just spinning wheels. But in fact, I think we're actually participating in this longer cosmic journey, which is to increase the species and diversities of things in the world, to increase possibilities, to increase options and degrees of freedom. And for that, we should have an open arm embrace. Interesting. And I know from reading the book that the answer to this is no, but I'd love to hear you kind of explain why. And that is, is this vision of the technium utopian? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not big on utopias. And I think one thing that any candid appraisal of technology would have to acknowledge is, is that every new technology is creating nearly as many problems as it is solving and most of the problems in our lives today are technogenic they've been generated by previous technologies 
it suggests very clearly that most of the problems in the future will be technogenic created by technologies that we've made today. For that reason alone, it's not utopia, and, and where we're headed is not a place where there are no problems, where technology solves, mends everything so that we kind of live in this state of bliss. Or it's not even to suggest that there's some endpoint in evolution, where some omega point, where we're all headed and everything is fixed and works perfectly, or it's in some ways culminated in perfection. First of all, that there is no endpoint in evolution. In fact, the the point of it is that there is no endpoint; that it's an open-ended process of continual flux and change and more importantly that the nature of the change itself is changing so in that way there's no utopia but also part of that internal flux is the fact that problems are constantly being invented as well as solutions and however saying that I, I do think there's a moral dimension to technology and that comes in the fact that while it's true that a newly invented technology will create as many nearly as many problems as solution, it's not neutral. I wouldn't say that sort of life is neutral, even though obviously life cannot go on without death. Death is sort of part of it. There's these cycles. But even though for every animal born, there's an animal dies, we don't think of life as just, oh, well, it's just neutral. No, we say life is good. Overall, the net effect of life is good. More life is better, even though everything born dies. And so you would say, well, you know, why isn't that neutral? And that's because um, the same thing happens in technology. When something is invented, let's say you invent a hammer, you could use that hammer to kill someone or you could use it to build something and there is a sense in which well that's just neutral it's tools you can use it for harm or for good but in fact the invention of that hammer actually introduces a brand new choice that we never had before and that choice I think tips the balance that new choice that did not exist before it tips the balance slightly in favor of the good because there is a new choice for good or harm that would never existed before and that new choice itself is good even if we choose the harm in it we have a choice that we did not have before and so I think it turns out that you don't need very much more good over time to get progress that if you use technology to curate 1% more than you destroy a year, that 1% compounded over time is what we call progress. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun, from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.